Well, good morning, Overland Church. It is so good to be with you uh, here today. I can't, I just, I don't know that I can fully express what a great joy it is to be here with you. My wife and I, Gail uh, and I, we are thoroughly excited about spending some extended time uh, with you all and getting better acquainted with you all. We really, it is our heart's desire to meet you, get acquainted with you, hear your stories, learn about you, and, uh, and really build relationships uh, with the people here at Overland Church. Uh, I was here three years ago with a team from Tri-Cities. We came out, did some construction and things like that. Man, God's done some incredible things. What you, I don't know if you recognize just how blessed you really are in terms of facilities and things like that for a church plant. It is just unheard of. God has really blessed this church in many ways. And I'll tell you what, we love this church. We believe in this church. We support this church. We, uh, we know that we see God at work here at Overland. And uh, have you arrived? No. Has Tri-Cities arrived in 32 years? No. But listen, God is at work here, and he's doing some incredible things. Uh, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 uh, this morning. But before we jump into the message this morning, I would like to say a couple other things, and that is, one, I just want to do a shout-out to the Kenyon family. They are a precious, precious family. Randy, Cheryl, Miss Bella, and Matthew. And then, of course, there's uh, Granite and there is Harmony, their dogs, and uh, their cat, Grizzly. Now, all of them have been thoroughly uh, hosp hospitable toward us. Well, maybe with the exception of Grizzly, you know cats. You know how they are, right? They, they, they tolerate you. They don't, they're not necessarily welcoming, you know, type thing. But anyways, we love the family. We've only known them a short time, but we have fallen in love with the Kenyon family. So grateful for their hospitality. And speaking of hospitality, as, as uh, Buddy said earlier, man, we'd love to come visit you uh, in your home, get acquainted with you. And uh, if you have us over for a meal, we'd love that. Uh, listen, we're not food snobs, and we don't have any food allergies. And uh, so, I mean, you can just cook anything you want to, with one exception. I don't do liver, uh, but now if that's all you know how to cook, we'll, we'll accommodate you, okay? But uh, we would love to come and just visit with you and get better acquainted with you. The other thing I want to say this morning, is, and that is if you're visiting this morning, if you're not a part of Overland Church and you're here for whatever reason you're passing through, uh, if, especially if you moved to this area and you're looking for a church home, Man, I want to encourage you, don't just blow in one Sunday and blow out and, you know, just try to find a lot of different experiences and whatnot. Come and spend at least six weeks here. That's the only way you really get to know the heart of a pastor or a church, the body of Christ here. Uh, spend some time here, really get to know what they're about. And uh, I think it will be much more helpful to you as, as a new person in this community, Okay. So let's uh, get, jump into the message this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So if you follow along with me, I would appreciate it. See, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the, of the Lord Jesus, 
beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now think about these words as we're reading them. These, these are just rich. These words are so rich. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He goes on to say in, in verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's incredible. Think about that. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to, to men. Drop down to verse 11. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come, listen, all, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking of Christ's likeness, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Listen, that goes on around us all the time, every day. The messages of this world are constantly in the face of the church and trying to get you to believe and accept the values of our culture rather than what God's Word has to say to us. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, y'all, <clears throat> by way of introduction, let me just say the theme of the book of Ephesians could be entitled this, The Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And biblically and historically speaking, the church has had primarily three main purposes. One is to exalt the Savior, which is what we've been endeavoring to do this morning as we've gathered together in worship and singing praises to His name. Two, to equip or to edify, build up the body of Christ. And three, to evangelize the lost. Not just here in our Jerusalem, not just here in Fort Collins, but across the state of Colorado, across the United States, and even around 
the world, God has given us that commission to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and preach the gospel. Now, y'all, you need to understand it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who initiated the church. And we find the first mention of the church in Matthew chapter 18, 16, verse 18, when Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, I'm sure when his disciples heard that, they were like, church, church, what's he talking about? What's this church he's talking about? And they had to learn what exactly he meant by that. But I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. He said, I will build my church. And what he did not say is, he did not say, I will build your church, where he is the builder and we are the owners, where the church belongs to us. He did not say that. He said, the, because the church belongs to Christ, not to us, Ephesians 5.25 talks about that, it's his bride, okay? And he did not say, you will build my church where we are the builders and he is the owner. Now, certainly we cooperate with him. Certainly we are participants in building the church, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who endeavors to build the church and he is the one who owns it. And he especially did not say, you will build your church where you are the builders and the owners of this church. That is not biblical to look at it that way. I would even call this the self-centered, self-focused church where, where uh, we, we believe that the church is all about us, and it's not. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and us coming un- into a surrendered relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ to exalt Him, to lift Him up, among the nations. Jesus is the builder of the church, and he is the one who owns the church. And we are are invited to come alongside and to get involved and to participate with him and to be the church that he is building. Now listen, my message this morning I've entitled, Three Marks of a Great Church. Now listen, as I said earlier, uh, Overland Church may not be yet a great church, but it's on its way. It's moving in that direction, and that's awesome. Tri-Cities Baptist Church is not a great church, but it's moving in that direction. It is our desire to be a great church. Now listen, there is greatness in the church, listen to this, as Christ designed it. There is greatness in the church as Christ designed it. Its greatness is not determined or measured by the size of its buildings. Its greatness is not measured by the significance or immensity of its budget. The greatness of a church is not measured by the frequency of its activities or its events. Here's the key. The greatness of a church is measured by the godly pursuit of its people, seeking to be like Christ in every way and to represent him truthfully, faithfully in this world. 
in the quality of its unity, in the effectiveness of its diversity, and in the genuineness of its maturity. Now, y'all, <laughs> I've been in a number of churches around over the years, right? And some churches that I've been in have reminded me much of a group of eighth grade girls I encountered many, many years ago when I first started off in ministry. Now, what, say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, this group practiced what I would call control techniques and manipulation. You see, what they would do is this. Uh, they, um, they had this little group of eight or ten. It was a clique, right, in the church. Eight or ten of these girls. And they wouldn't let anybody into the group, nor would they let anybody out of the group. So let's say one of the little girls in the group, uh, one day she, she, a, new, a new girl comes into the, to the church, and, and she kind of reaches out to this new girl and tries to get to know this new girl. And, or maybe it's a boy that she's interested in or something like that. The rest of the girls, you know what they would do? What they would do is they'd huddle together, and they would write a letter to this girl who now was you know, getting out of the bounds, getting out of the lines and so forth. And they would say some of the nastiest, meanest things that you could imagine. And then they would all sign the letter. And then they would deliver this letter to this little girl and just wait for her to read it and then dissolve into tears you know, because of the things that were said. And then they would huddle around her and they would re bring her back into the fold and they would say, uh, it's okay, we, we forgive you, you know, you, you, you're with us again, you know. Listen. Rather than unity, they practice manipulation. Rather than diversity, they practiced conformity. And rather than maturity, they practiced childish behavior. Now, as childish as this behavior may seem to you, it too often, unfortunately, exists among churches today. Oh, perhaps it's more sophisticated, but the goal and the results are the same. Manipulation and control. And that's not what the church is supposed to be at all. And that's why Paul exhorts uh, the church to walk in a mad manner worthy of your calling in verse 1. He says that. This word walk in the New Testament is a word that, that basically talks about how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives. We are to live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And our calling refers to our salvation or our union with Christ and his bride, the church. And the, the word worthy, to walk worthy, this word worthy literally means to give equal weight. In other words, consider your calling, as, as incredible as that is, to become a child of God and a part of the family of God here in the church. Consider your calling and that your conduct would give equal weight to that so that your conduct and your calling reflect truth with one another. Does that make sense? This, this means yes, this means no. Okay, you got it? Okay, all right. So we're to walk worthy 
of our calling. And he begins verse 1 by saying, therefore. Now, you probably have heard this a million times, but whenever you see the word therefore in the scriptures, you, you've got to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And it, what he's referring to in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's referring to everything that preceded that Paul wrote in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He said, based upon the things that I've just shared with you in these three chapters, therefore walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, you need to understand one thing about Paul's writings. Uh, basically, and this is true pretty much every letter that he wrote, the first half of the letter is basically doctrinal, where he's teaching us who we are in Christ and, 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 and what, what we, how we should see ourselves as children of God. And then the second half of the letter, he gets more practical, and he starts really fleshing it out. Okay, say, now based upon who you are in Christ, how should we live? How should we conduct our lives? How should we uh, be putting into practice the things that we read in the first half of Ephesians? Now, let me just give you a few things that he mentioned in the first half of Ephesians, and then we'll get into the meat of the message here. And that is, first of all, in verse 3, he tells us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now think about this for a minute. First of all, there's the blessing of redemption through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and how he's forgiven us of our sins. There's also the blessing of his word. He has given us a true, objective word that we can read and we can apply to our lives and it helps us to know how we ought to live. What is his mind and his heart toward us as his children? He's also given us his Holy Spirit who indwells the life of every true believer and is actively involved in teaching us and helping us to understand his word. And he's also given us the church, the family of God, the brothers and sisters who come around us to help us to, uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ. In verse 4a, he talks about the fact that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And what that simply means is, you know, people do not become Christians by accident. It's intentional. It's purposeful. God is at work in their hearts and lives. And he tells us that we are chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Now, that doesn't mean sinless. Blameless and sinless aren't the same thing. We're all, we all are sinners, right? And we all mess up from time to time. But our pursuit after Christ should be such that uh, we are living in such a way that no one can throw stones at us. In, in 4b, uh, excuse me, in verse 5, he says that we were adopted into the family of God according to the purpose of his will. He's adopted us into his family. Verse 7, he talks about we were redeemed. That word redeemed means to be ransomed from our slavery to sin and forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future. Now listen, I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you this morning. And if there's something I say that you don't quite understand or you'd like to, uh, to talk about first, man, I'm here and I'll be glad to talk to you about it. But uh, anyways, I want you to understand what he's saying here. In verse 11, he says, We have obtained in him an inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. You have an inheritance with Christ in heaven. 
And in verse 13, we have been sealed with His Holy Spirit who protects and preserves all true believers until our inheritance is fully realized. And then you drop over to to chapter 2 and the first five verses. Oh man, this is one of the most incredible passages in all of Ephesians when he talks about how we were once dead in trespasses and sin, how we were once following the priorities and the values of this world and of Satan, how we were once sons of disobedience, how we were once by nature children of wrath. And then you come to verse 4 and it says, But God, two of the most precious words I have ever read in the Scriptures, but God, who is rich in mercy and who has loved us with an everlasting love, and has made us alive in Christ. Is that not incredible when you think about it? He took us out of death, out of darkness, and moved us into his marvelous light, and he has made us alive in Christ. Then you get to chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. He talks about being seated, how we're seated in heavenly places. So far, And what that means is so far as God is concerned, we're already there. Because you see, he sees the past, the present, the future, all the same. There's nothing, no difference to him. And in his mind and in his heart, we're already there. Seated in the heavenlies with him. And then chapter 3, he ends by saying, We are being rooted and grounded in the knowledge of his love. And filled with all the fullness of of God, so that we might be able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine according to the power that works within us. Now, what he's saying there is this. Because of all that he has done on our behalf, he says, listen, you have the power of God residing in you to do things you can't even imagine for the sake of God's glory and for his righteousness. Man, you know what? So many of us, most of us, maybe, maybe all of us, are living beneath our privilege as children of God because we don't understand just what God can do in the life of a true believer who is sold out to him. He can do things in your life you can't even begin to imagine right now you know I, I i can relate to that because you know when i was a young man i thought god wanted me to be a christian businessman and I, I got a business degree and i was in business and i was as a lay person i was involved in the church and, and different things but but i thought that that was his, my calling and i remember i got involved in the student ministry of, of bellevue baptist church there in memphis and uh, I'd go out with the youth pastor every Tuesday night. We'd have dinner together, and then we'd go out on visitation. Those were the days when you could visit people, and they weren't offended. But uh, anyways, we'd go out on visitation. And, uh, but when, when we were there at dinner time, I'd be pouring out to him my frustrations with work and just, you know, just not feeling... Uh, like I was really being satisfied in what I was doing and things like that. He'd listen very patiently. I mean, this went on week after week after week for about a year. Every week, same thing. And then after, after being very patient with me, he'd look at me, he'd smile, and he'd say, So Gene, 
when are you going to seminary? And I'd say, oh, uh, Dan, I'm not, I'm not cut out for that. That's not, that's not my calling to be a pastor or anything like that. I'm, I'm just, that's not me. But Dan knew better. He could see it. He could see I wasn't satisfied. And uh, anyways, I went on my first mission trip back in 1979. Went to the Navajo Indian Reservation in northeast Arizona. And I was scared to death. I did not want to go. I opened my big fat mouth and somehow got you know, committed to go on this thing. And I didn't want to do it. And I was dreading it for three months as we were preparing for it. And until the day I stepped on the bus to go out there. And the peace of God just washed over me in an incredible way. Got out there, was very uh, useful in the ministry, and I'd learned something. I can do this. I can do this. Not only, I, not only can I do this, I loved it. I loved doing it. It was incredible. It was so, you know, it was life-changing for me. And when I came back, I surrendered to the call of, of Christian ministry and began seminary in 1980. And, uh, man, the rest is history. And God has done amazing things. He's taken me places I never dreamed that I could go and allowed me to be a part of his work in so many different ways. And I tell you, I just feel so incredibly blessed. But at the same time, let me tell you, I know. I know. I haven't arrived. There's still, God's still working at work in me. I'm 67, almost 68 years old. God's still very much at work in my life. There's very much ground yet to be covered. In other words, the way we live should reflect the graciousness of our calling as God's children in humility, gentleness, patience, understanding, and peace. All right, for about 15 more minutes, if you can just hang in there, 15 more minutes, I want to give you a big truth and three big ideas. Here's the big truth. Great churches are marked by three important qualities, unity, diversity, and maturity. Big idea number one, a great church focuses on what unites them. A great church focuses on what unites them. Read with me, if you would, in chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now he talks about how much we have in common. And how we are unified, even though we don't necessarily see it or recognize it. He says there is one spirit. Excuse, excuse me, one body. Uh, and he gives seven qualities here. One body where the Jesus in you loves the Jesus in me, and the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you. We are one body. He also talks about one spirit. The Spirit of God, who is the source of all unity in the church. He talks about one hope, which speaks of our future and eternal reward and inheritance in Christ. 
He talks about one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And he talks about one faith, or speaking of biblical doctrine, which is our foundation of faith and practice in the church. One baptism. Now, the theologians kind of, you know, argue about what this baptism is talking about. Is it spiritual baptism in the church? Is it talking about water baptism? I'm inclined to believe it's talking about water baptism, and I'll tell you why. I, for one thing, I think it's because of the context of how it falls. One body, one spirit. If he's talking about spiritual baptism, he probably would have said one baptism at that point, but he doesn't. He comes down. One uh, hope, one faith, one Lord. Excuse me. Yeah, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It falls in line because, you see, baptism is that of uh, our public confession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through baptism, we see the gospel, the, the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was resurrected from the grave. It also, and we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection as a believer, but also it's a picture of our own death, death to self, being buried in Christ through baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. And baptism also is a picture of our future, in that, should the Lord tarry, we will all die. We will all be buried, but there's coming a day when Jesus comes back for his church and our bodies will be resurrected from the grave. And then he says, one God, a father of all true believers around the world, who is of all, above all, through all, and in you all. Seven things we, we all hold in common that should unify us as the body of Christ, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, one thing that never ceases to amaze me when it's talking about these, all these one, one spirit, one faith, one body, one, you know, whatever, one God. Wherever I have traveled around the world, in various countries, in various um, continents and things, the one thing that I never cease to be amazed of is that the true believers in that country, even though we come from a different culture, a different language, a different backgrounds and all this, we still hold in common the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so evident that you already know that you are linked together as one, as part of the, the greater church, the, the, uh, the global church. It never ceases to amaze me where one believer from one part of the world can find exact uh, sense of unity with a believer in some other part of the world. Now ponder this for a moment. Ponder this for a moment. Because we have a tendency in our flesh to focus more on what divides us than what unites us. Do you not find that to be true? It's so easy for us to pick at one another in the church or to pick at somebody and somebody's teaching or whatever because, and say, well, I don't think that way or I don't believe that way or I don't, you know, I'm not sure that's the right interpretation or whatever. We, find, we, we have a tendency to lean more toward what divides us than what unites us and there's every reason for us to be united 
as the body of Christ. Paul is literally saying here that the church is one body, united in one spirit, assured of heaven by one hope, based upon the redemptive work of one Lord, which is we receive through one faith and confess through one baptism that there is one God and Father for all the nations who is above all, through all, and in you all. Does that not speak of unity? So here's a question I want to ask you. Do you, and I want you to think about this, please. I want you to evaluate your own heart in this. Do you reflect the Spirit of God in both your attitudes and actions, embracing and promoting unity in the church among believers? And if not, why not? I'll let you deal with that. I'll let you wrestle with that. Second big idea. A great church focuses on what unites them while celebrating the diversity and giftedness of its members. Again, verse 7. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according... Excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 7, chapter 4. I thought something was wrong then. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then when you drop down to verse 11 and 12, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There's a diversity of gifts. God has gifted the church with a diversity of gifts. And if you, if you really want to, to, to see even more deeply in that, go to Romans chapter 12 and read what Romans chapter 12 has to say about giftings. He talks about there being seven motivational gifts. Uh, there, uh, teaching, prophecy, or proclamation of the gospel, uh, leading, or, or administration. He talks about service. He talks about... Uh, mercy. He's got seven gifts that he talks about that these are motivational gifts. And God has gifted us each uniquely and each differently. Why? So that we can serve the body of Christ together. You see, it is our differences that help us to recognize our need for one another. I need you. And you need me. I need what you can bring to the table, and you need what I can bring to the table, and all of us can bring to the table. No one individual is capable of meeting all the needs that exist in the body of Christ. Not your pastor, not your pastoral st staff, not your elders or church leaders. No one person can do that. It takes all of us to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a church is most effective when all the members are engaged in helping to strengthen the church. I want to say something, and this may offend somebody, I don't know. But I want you to think about it. Those who are engaged in helping to row the boat are less likely to rock the boat. Think about that in terms of the church. If you're engaged, if you're actively involved, if you're, you're participating and you're serving and stuff, you're more likely to be involved in helping to row the boat 
and helping it to move forward in Christ than to rock the boat through disagreements and, and having differences within the church. Notice in verse 7, these, this sovereignty of gifts he talks about, that of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. These are gifts that he has given to the church. And so I want to ask you, what is the purpose of these provisions? Why has God given us these gifts? Well, he tells us in verse uh, uh, 12, for the equipping of the saints. What is he equipping the saints for? For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Listen, that's what a church is supposed to do. The leaders of the church, the, the, the people who have been called out as special gifts to the church are to equip the body of Christ. That's why I have things like the family discipleship uh, plan and discipling. We should be discipling one another and encouraging, building up and lifting up others so that the saints can be edified and equipped for the work of the ministry. Listen, we are all in this room, you are all ministers of the gospel. Not just those who stand on this pulpit. We all are. We're supposed to be. And to edify the body of Christ, that's what diversity is all about. And so I have a question for you. Are you a person who has placed yourself in a position to be trained for the work of ministry to the glory of God and to the benefit of the body of Christ? Listen, if you haven't, you can be. All you need to do is talk to one of these leaders up here and just come and say, man, I, I, I want to be involved. I want to be engaged. Help me, teach me, train me, help me to know how I can better serve the Lord Jesus Christ and serve this church well. And then the last big idea. A great church focuses on what unites them, while celebrating the diversity and giftedness of its members, till all have grown up into spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, that's not perfect in the sense of without fault, but perfect in the sense of complete, mature, to a mature man or woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Christ-likeness, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, who is Christ. What is the goal of spiritual maturity? To make disciples and to bring all the church members to their intended destination, spiritual maturity. Unity of the faith, oneness and harmony regarding sound doctrine, Knowledge of the Son of God speaks of experiencing Christ through prayer and faithful study of His Word. 
to a, a complete man, perfect man, not, not speaking of perfection, but of completeness and spiritual maturity, as I said, not like ignorant and confused children who are easily misguided. To the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, demonstrating the spirit of Christ-likeness in all things. In other words, we're not to be like children tossed about and carried away with every false teaching of the world by those who would seek to confuse and mislead the spiritually immature in the church. What are the results of spiritual maturity? He says, speaking the truth in love. Not with condemnation, but with integrity of heart. And listen, that's never easy. And it's never comfortable, but it is necessary. We need to learn how to speak the truth in love with one another. That we may grow up in all things in Him, becoming more and more like Christ with the help of the body. Being joined and knit together by, every joint, every joint, by what every joint supplies. God has uniquely gifted you for service in the body of Christ. You can play a critical role in the church, but only if you are joined and knit together with the other members of the body. You can't really have a great impact in the church if you're on the outside of the church, if you're an outsider in the church. According to effective working by which every part in its share causes growth in the body, how we serve the church can help others to grow in grace for the edifying of itself in love a healthy church listen to this a healthy church builds healthy believers and healthy believers help to build a healthy church and recognizing that God is the one who builds the church but we are his workmen, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. So here's my question to you. I'm coming to a close. Are you a person who is spiritually healthy and growing in your relationship with Christ? Have you been engaged to help bring health and strength to the body of Christ. Again, if not, why not? But hold you back. You can be, if you're willing to submit yourself to spiritual growth and training. Now, this morning, I've delivered this message as best as I know how, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who could have done it way better than me. But here's the question. What will you do with what you've heard today. What are you going to do with it? Did you just come this morning to sit and soak and walk out unchanged? Or are you open to God challenging your heart to be more like Him, to be surrendered to Christ, and to be engaged in the work of the ministry of the church? Would you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word and how your word so challenges us in so many ways, Father. Our, 
everything we read in your word is counterintuitive to our flesh. It is so unlike what we naturally think or what we naturally pursue. But Father, you have something greater in mind for us than just simply to be forgiven. You want more for us. And, and it's, Father, it's incredible that you would even desire and open yourself up for us to participate in your work. To be your hands, to be your feet. You're the head. We are the body. Father, I pray for these precious people here today. Lord, that they truly would be challenged by your word this morning. That they'd want to look deeper into what your word, not just accept what I've said this morning, but go back and study for themselves and look at this, this passage and, 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 and really uh, chew on it and really uh, uh, devour it and really uh, process it, Father, in their hearts, in their minds. And see, Lord, what you might want to say to each of them. No doubt there are people here today who are very much engaged in the life of this church, very much surrendered, and very much uh, excited about the work that you're doing here. There may be others here this morning who quite honestly would say, you know, I really haven't really thought about it. I, I never realized. I didn't understand what exactly the church is supposed to be. Father, I pray that you would do a work in, in each heart this morning and that you would take us to that next step, that next level of spiritual maturity as we, as we pursue you, Father. For, for the Christian life, it's not about perfection. The Christian life is about pursuit. Help us to pursue you and your, your will for our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.